This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. By the end of the year, five families from Hamilton will be able to will be able to read the SIU's details on the deaths of their loved ones killed by police. This is due to a recommendation from a review uh, and the Ontario government. To talk more about all of this, Dave McCormick is with his executive vice president of business development, Investigative Solutions Network Inc., and on the line with us now. Hello, Dave. How are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. To those that aren't in this line of work, what, what was the objective of the police oversight review? What happened here, in your opinion? Well, the objective was uh, pretty much what it was very back in the beginning when the SIU first came into being, is that uh, a large segment of the population was unhappy with the result and the apparent uh, investigation of, of police officers when they came into contact with members of the public that resulted in death or serious bodily harm. The public uh, felt that the police were not being held accountable and that there was not an independent, transparent body in place to investigate and take appropriate action. And we've seen that surface again in the last couple of years, and we've seen demonstrations in the streets of Toronto and elsewhere. And I think that's what has caused that the further review to be conducted uh, as uh, requested of uh, Justice Michael Tulloch, and that's where we are now. So what are your thoughts on the independent police oversight review? So the portions that I've read pertaining particularly to the SIU, I I would have to say that I agree with very much the most part of what Justice Tulloch has to say. It is an organization that needs to be seen, the SIU that is, as totally independent of any police force of the OPP commissioner. And uh, as as the fact is today that it is, it doesn't appear to be. And there is always a segment of the public that thinks that it is almost an arm of a police body. It's crucial that there is independent overview and uh, for those types of injuries, those types of deaths, as well as public complaints. And, and that's what uh, Justice Tulloch was tasked with. I, I think it's uh, an entity that needs to exist. And the, the basis for policing in, in Ontario and in Canada is based upon trust. And that public trust has to be there that the police officers are out doing the proper thing. And when there is an opportunity to investigate whether they did or they didn't, based on fact, you certainly have to have an independent body that has the teeth to do that. So, in your opinion, what is different now uh, post uh, this review? Well, one of the biggest things, I think, is the report, the release of the reports by the SIU director. So the director's final report, Justice Tulloch, is making strong arguments that they be released in modified formats, depending on the initial investigation circumstances and the outcome, to the public each and every time. So where the SIU invokes its mandate and lays charges, he is suggesting that a report go out in which case um, the officer, the subject officer of the matter is named. In those instances where the SIU has invoked its mandate in the initial instance, but then has withdrawn from the case because usually it didn't meet the criteria once they started to dig into it, the injury is not there, or in some instances where there is zero cooperation from the person who was injured. Uh, he's, He's saying that in each and every instance, those should be released to the public. I think that's the biggest change. I mean, there are an awful lot of recommendations covering a lot of areas, but those are some of the more uh, spectacular ones that are coming out of this report, as well as uh, identifying and not identifying. Uh, so should should these names be given? Should the should people, should victims, families know who the officer was that was involved in these? Well, I agree strongly with what Justice Tulloch has said here. In those instances where the investigation leads to criminal charges of a police officer, I feel, as Justice Tulloch does, that yes, that officer should be named, as would any other member of the public facing similar charges. In instances where an investigation is conducted into criminality and the SIU comes to the conclusion that there are no grounds to lay criminal charges, then just as any other member of the public who was involved in such an investigation, those subject officers should not be named 
and I think that I think it's a fair process to follow. Uh, is there still much demand for names of those officers to be released? Again, you, you know, your case seems like common sense at this point. Is there still people wanting to know that information? Oh, I suspect there will be a lot of people that still want to know that information. They will figure that in each and every instance, the police officer who is perceived to have caused this injury or death should have his or her name out there in the public, despite the outcome of the SIU investigation. You're never going to satisfy everybody, Scott. Yeah, good point. Uh, have families been kept in the dark in this sort of thing over the past? Uh, in the past, I mean, under the old system, was there a way to uh, to stop this from happening? Well, for clarity, we are still under the old system. I mean, these were recommendations that Justice Talk has come out with. I'm not aware of them being implemented yet. Uh, but there, there was um, certainly some perception that families were left in the dark and that the, the SIU director did not have to release the reports uh, in a public fashion. So when that happens, and keeping in mind that these are families of somebody who has lost their lives um, during interaction with the police or has been very, very seriously injured, any family in any situation like that is going to be looking for as much information as possible. They're going to want to know what happened to their family member. And yeah, in the past, they haven't received a lot of a lot of information uh, from the SIU or from the police, um, albeit the police have their hands uh, a little bit tied based on the current legislation where they're not allowed to make any comment about the ongoing investigation by the SIU. So I think uh, in the big picture, uh, Justice Tullock has taken an approach that will satisfy a much larger segment of the population uh, whether they're involved or not, because he also speaks to those matters where uh, there would be such a significant public interest that the, the SIU could release those reports. Again, redacted in a fashion that would ensure privacy for, for those people that were involved, especially uh, subject officers, civilian witnesses, police witnesses, uh, but providing enough information for the public to be satisfied that, yes, there was a thorough and transparent investigation into this matter, and whether they like the outcome or they don't, the outcome is just. Will there be challenges going forward if these uh, imp- uh, if these uh, recommendations are implemented? Is there anything that stands out that could be challenging in the future? Well, nothing is jumping off. I mean, off of the uh, the report to me, but uh, going down the road, there's, there's always challenges to any type of a change. Uh, Justice Tullock is calling for uh, this to be a private piece of legislation that is outside of the Police Services Act, where it's currently governed, as well as the OI- OIPRD and the OCPC. So when you get a new piece of legislation, there will always be some legal challenges to it, and there will be case law that will amend it and regulations to amend the actual uh, provincial legislation. So going forward, there's always going to be challenges anytime something new comes out. And and as I said earlier, and you agreed, there's always going to be a segment of the population that is never going to be happy, regardless of what's implemented, for all of the right reasons. Obviously, we've heard uh, police investigating police. That's what seems to get the public upset about this. Is there room for private citizens to do this? I mean, are there private organizations that are that are qualified to look into this stuff, or do we need a certain amount of police oversight on these? Well, we definitely need police oversight on these, and I think the police welcome police oversight on these. Uh, private organizations, off the top of my head, I would say no, although there are a lot of private organizations that do... Uh, investigate a case on behalf of of a client to say, yes, the findings were just or no, the findings were improper, and here's some of the reasons why. But when you look at the actual makeup of the current SIU, you're looking at 67% of their investigators being former police, and that is to say that 33% are not. Now, Justice Tullock is asking for that number to be higher, but he also recognizes that when you draw from the general population, you could find very, very many 
regular members of the public who are highly qualified, but they also may have a strong bias towards the police. And they're going to be as potentially ineffective as our hiring police officers who come in and say, I don't care what I see, I'm not going to find that the police officers did anything wrong. And the flip side is also true. I mean, you see a large number of police officers who are, are so full of integrity and ethics that they carry out these investigations and they let the evidence take them to wherever the evidence takes them and they make a decision based on what the evidence says, regardless of at pre- at previous alliances with any police service that they may have worked for. So you have to have a fine mix, and I think it brings you know a real diversity of opinion, of diversity of experience, and a diversity of view to the findings. I think it's a great mix to have. Uh, obviously, as you said, uh, you're not going to please everybody all the time. Uh, will this alleviate public's concerns moving forward if these are implemented? I think it will certainly go a long way to alleviating the vast majority of the public's concerns. Dave McCormick has been with us, Executive Vice President of Business Development Investigative Solutions Network, Inc. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, the Ontario government says that the anti-sprawl policies aren't contributing to the housing shortage uh, and and soaring housing prices in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. Some groups, such as BUILD, say they aren't proposing going into the Greenbelt, but rather greenfield lands on the outskirts of cities. It just seems odd. Like, does the Greenbelt go from the edge of the city to to Sault Ste. Marie? Like, it just seems odd that, you know, we're trying really hard to make the greater Toronto-Hamilton area into a really smart, people-friendly community, which is hard because these cities are, like, you know, extremely old, and you're trying to fit new infrastructure in. So what is the perfect community, and why the hell aren't they building it on the outskirts, complete with state-of-the-art transit getting us to and fro? That's the part I don't get. It's not like we're living on an island and there's only one direction to go and that's up. Now, I'm not suggesting cutting into the green belt because, again, as we build smart and great communities, that all has to be included as part of it. But, again, it just, you know, what's the plan beyond what we have? And does the green belt go beyond anything that's already built? Right up to, like, uh, I don't know, Sault Ste. Marie? It doesn't seem that there's any sort of plan. And all that really happens is prices are going through the roof because there's a lack of supply. And yet you'll get a a bazillion people telling you a bazillion different reasons as why that is. How did we get to where we are? Uh, Let's bring in uh, Suzanne Mamel, Executive Officer with the Hamilton Halton Home Builders Association and is with us now. Hello, Suzanne. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Great. So uh, is there a housing shortage in, in Ontario right now? Would, there, would you consider there to be a housing shortage? I would say, yeah, that generally for certain types of housing, uh, demand exceeds supply. So that's why, a shortage. And why do you think that is? Uh, cities are mandated by provincial policy to plan for future populations. Uh, up to the year 2041 in our circumstances. And uh, that's when you look at the numbers of what the province projects we're supposed to plan for, it's a lot of people. Uh, In Hamilton for 2041, we're supposed to expect a total population of 780,000 people. In Halton, a million people. And when you compare that to uh, current census data, uh, Hamilton, the 26. 2016 data is at 536,000 and Holden's at 548,000. It's a lot of new people we have to plan for. 
And so, you know, we have finite uh, land with which to accommodate those people. So the province has given us rules by which uh, we can build, and that's the growth plan, and it's paired with the Greenbelt Act. And uh, so what we build now is uh, smaller, denser, higher in some instances, um, and it's not necessarily paired with uh, what people are still looking for. Uh, So certain types of houses, I'll say the single-family house, is in far shorter supply than it was before. We don't build near as many of them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not what people want. So it affects the price. So what does a smart community look like? Well, like it, it seems we're trying to make Hamilton into something that it, it, it wasn't designed to, to be, and, and I'm not criticizing that by any means. Progress is progress. It was built during a, a certain time, and now we're, we're trying to you know slowly eliminate the car and get into transit. But why don't we build those perfect communities with the green belts and the transportation and the infrastructure and, and even higher density? Why aren't we building those communities? Why, well, aren't we, why I, aren't we building perfect communities to go around these ones that we didn't do quite well the first time? So I think that uh, the planners of the world, they, uh, they, they have a vision of what the best way to do that is. And it evolves over time, just as our cities do. So what 30 years ago people saw 30 years from now is very different from what we see 30 years from now. Uh, it's, it's tough to have a city evolve because people live uh, in their communities and they move there because they like it. They don't necessarily want to see it change. A lot of people would, they don't mind change as long as it's somewhere else. Hmm. And uh, so that that's a factor. Uh, but, you know, People's choices now uh, have a lot to do with price, location. You can't always get both, right? So you choose yeah. location or type of housing. So everybody can't have everything they want. So it's, it's a tough go, right? Because there's only so much money to go around. Uh, so what, like, do, can, can we do this? Can we expand supply without eating into Greenbelt? Like people say... Uh, well, geez, if you if you build out, you're just it's urban sprawl, and you're 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 eating into the green belt again. I go back to my my first scenario. The country's only going to get bigger. It's only going to grow. So why aren't we building these quote smart communities, and 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 going beyond the green belt? Like you know, there's there's development, there's green, there's development, there's green, there's transportation, there's green. Like why aren't we including all of this? It's not like we live in Vancouver. So I think there's a misconception out there that any new uh, greenfield development is in the greenbelt, and that's not true. There's actually a a swath of land in some areas, Hamilton included, called what I'm going to call a a white belt. And that's area that's uh, designated for future development that's not in the greenbelt, and it's designated for uh, future development in a variety of forms. So uh, in Hamilton, you know, you've got areas in Waterdown, Stony Creek, uh, Upper Stony Creek Mountain, and these are lands that are, are called white belts. So some of the growth that happens will happen there. And I think if you look at how communities are built now, they are built smarter than they were 20, 30 years ago. They're built uh, more dense with a variety of housing forms. You see a mix of single-family houses, townhouses, semis, yeah. stacks garden apartments. So we do build differently and, and it is smarter. 
So there is uh, growth potential in places like Hamilton, Oakville's the same. Burlington's an anomaly. It doesn't really have any of that land left. But once you use that up, you're right, you do. You have to hopscotch over the Greenbelt and into areas further beyond because you know, the green belt doesn't go to infinity. It's a, it's a swath that goes but it's, all it's, the way around from it, Niagara to, I don't know, about Peterborough, I'm thinking. But yeah. there is land on the other side of it. But it's further to get to for those people who work in the GTHA. Yeah. It's further to drive or to take the train or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's, it's a lifestyle choice then for those people. As you just said, we build smarter now. Is this policy outdated? I mean, you could see that this, this policy was put in place to, uh, to prevent urban sprawl, get us to move up and create some of these environments that you're now speaking of. But is it time for an update on this? Well, the the uh, province put the Greenbelt Plan into place in 2005, and it is to be reviewed every 10 years. And they're going through a review of that plan right now. They were collecting feedback from different people uh, in 2016 up to about February of this year uh, to talk about tweaks, uh, adding certain sections to the Greenbelt, taking sections that weren't necessarily appropriate away. Uh, but, the I mean, the Greenbelt isn't just about uh, limiting where development happens. It's also about protecting the environment and about uh, you know saving agricultural land. So there's a lot of a lot of things that go into Greenbelt. It's not exclusively uh, a land development policy. No, but isn't this a chance to build those perfect communities? Isn't this a chance to build what everybody is trying to do to the urban centers? Well, with, 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 with the infrastructure for transit already in place, with, with everything that they're trying to do to the GH, G, uh, GTHA now already in place as it's being designed. So, uh, you know, I think the reality is, is that the province has said that's not where they're going with this. And yeah. we deal with the policies and have been for the last 10 plus years. We deal with the policies that, that are given to us. We don't, uh, the land development industry doesn't create those policies. We just build with what we've got. So I think the focus has to be more on the, uh, the sister piece, which is the growth plan. And that tells us how and where we should build. Uh, what those smart communities or perfect communities, like you're calling them, what, what those look like. And that's the set of rules that talks about what cities look like, whether they be Hamilton or Oakville or Vaughan or Richmond Hill. It, it doesn't matter. The, the policies right now, they're all the same regardless of city. Uh, is, is this the sort of thing where we will find a solution in the short term? I mean, I've heard some politicians say developers have, you know, a lot of it too is developers who aren't developing. They're sitting on things. They're not they're not creating the stock that needs to be created. What is your answer to that? I heard the same thing. I mean, uh, I, I, I would be very curious to have that information. It's very much not what I hear. I mean, it costs a lot of money to develop. It costs a lot of money to build. There's a hot market. We've just said there's a lack of supply. I don't know why it would be in any developer or builder's best interest to wait. I don't, I don't see it. It just doesn't make sense to me. So where do you think this is going, Susan? Suzanne, sorry. That's okay. Uh, you know, the reality is is that the, the province's growth plan, uh, they're about to lay out for us what it is that uh, they're going to finally land on in about uh, six weeks' time or so, I think, I hear in June. So the beginning of June. 
uh, we've uh, we've delegated on that uh, to talk about the reality that a one-size-fits-all solution does not work for the GTHA, that what works for downtown Toronto doesn't necessarily work in Hamilton. Uh, and that's not just the home builders' position. That was also municipalities. They uh, they they set very consistent themes with uh, uh, the building and land development industry in that regard. That the targets that have been set up and they're really tough to achieve. Uh, so in the short term, uh, I don't see a, an instantaneous solution. It depends on what the government comes out with. What we could it could get worse before it gets better. I. I don't know, but uh, it is in the government's hands, really, to 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 sort out how because what they tell us what what we have to build is what we have to build, whether it's what home buyers want or not. Suzanne Mammel has been with us, executive officer with the Hamilton Halton Home Builders Association. Suzanne, thanks for the time and insight; much appreciated. No problem, anytime. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Burkhard Mausberg, CEO of Friends of the Greenbelt Foundation, author of The Greenbelt, Protecting and Cultivating a Great Ontario Treasure. And Burkhard is with us now. Hello, Burkhard. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Burkhard, is this about building on the Greenbelt or just building more beyond the Greenbelt? Well, it's certainly not building on the Greenbelt. The Greenbelt is 2 million acres of protected space. It has about a million acres of farmland with some 5,500 farms. It also features the Oakland Terrain and the, the Niagara Escarpment. So it doesn't really make sense to build on those protected spaces where we need to eat and where we need clean air and clean water. So uh, is the, uh, it seems to be that people are confusing whether uh, you know we need to expand... Uh, housing stock around the greater Hamilton, Toronto area and actually, you know, tapping into the Greenbelt. I don't think anybody necessarily wants to do that. That being said, Ontario is a vast province with lots of area for controlled, smart growth. Uh, Where do we go from here? Where do do we take this? Well, to begin, I want to say a couple of things about housing prices because that's been your main concern on your show today. The first thing is, this is a global phenomenon. This is happening in every major center, in Western center, where people want to live. In Berlin, for example, the land prices to build on went up by 50% in one year. This is part of the migration to urban centers where you have amenities, where you have closeness to be able to get to work quickly, and so on. So the first thing about prices is to know that this is, we're not unique. And we're not unique even compared to cities that don't have a green belt. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Royal Bank of Canada a couple months ago came up with a very good study. It tried to quantify why are housing prices going up? What are the causes? And the three top ones are, number one, is low interest rates. And number two is a, a greater portion of our incomes is going towards the mortgage. And number three is a greater down payment. For younger folks, it's usually the, mom, uh, the, the, the bank of mom and dad. So that's, a, that, that's, that, that's their rationale for causing housing prices to increase. 
Uh, well, again, what makes housing prices increase is lack of supply. I mean, obviously, things like interest rates and what have you uh, move into that. But as with anything, it's supply and demand. The more they are, the more the more that they'll drop. Uh, again, you know, it's 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 tough to compare, you know, countries in Europe to to Canada and such. We have lots and lots of land, and and not very many people on it in the grand scheme of things. So. Why not just build controlled, smart communities? We all know what we're trying to do to the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, provide more transit, get away from the car, all of this sort of thing. Why aren't we building these types of new future uh, communities beyond our borders? Not necessarily in the green belt, but even beyond that and linking them with state-of-the-art transit and, and so on as opposing to as opposed to having you know the majority of our population all within um, you know 100 kilometers of Lake Ontario or the US border well I think we are doing that uh, Scott and I think we're doing it in different places around uh, certainly the Toronto area and that's the whole point of the growth plan and having the green belt and having land use policies that that uh, encourages that kind of building of complete communities you talked a lot about how much land we have, and you're absolutely right. We have a ton more land than my home country of Germany, and they have 85 million people the size of one-third of Quebec. But what you see in countries like that is that they build really good, efficient transit systems. If we go out into a greenfield area, a new area, and start building from scratch, we have to put all that infrastructure in place. What the growth plan says and what the greenland plan does, it says, wait, we're going to protect the really important farm and natural heritage areas, and we're going to try to get the municipalities to build inside the urban boundaries. Mm-hmm. The best example I have for this, Scott, is Paris. I don't know if you've been to Paris. I've been there a couple of times. And you have typically seven, eight-story buildings along major, along major urban routes. Mm-hmm. You have retail or a restaurant in the, first, in the first floor. In the second and third, you have light commercial. And then above there, you have residential. Why can't we do that here? Why can't we be the Paris of North America? When I look at Toronto as an example, Mississauga is the same way too. When we go among major urban arteries, Lower Street, Dundas Street, you name it, we see two-story buildings, maybe three-story, and then a 40-story condo tower. That doesn't seem to make sense from a planning perspective. And you find a lot of folks that live in those communities are saying, no, we don't want a 40-story condo tower in our community. So the planning, in my view, needs to happen the way Paris does it. Seven, eight stories along major arteries, this way we can all share in the amenities and infrastructure that exists. You know, I think perhaps, though, uh, Burkhardt, this is where the conflict is created, is that, you know, rather than taking things that we've learned from those European cities and bringing them here, we're almost trying to mimic them. And I don't know if that template works because it doesn't have to. Uh, again, you know, I, I can certainly see the merit of everything that you're saying, but I don't think we can do it in a place like Canada, where, number one, it isn't like Paris or Germany, where we have to. So I still think we can have smart growth, per se, uh, with transit and, and, and state-of-the-art facilities that we need to move us from point A or point B. Um, but again, you know, I think we can do that while taking better advantage of the land that is not only within the city limits, but also just outside the city limits. It's as if we've got this city and now it's surrounded by, or, or you know, Southern Ontario and it's surrounded by this green belt. So everything that's, you know, within the lake and the, between the lake and the green belt has now all of a sudden gone through the roof and we're not really planning on what's going beyond the green belt or what's going beyond there to create smart communities, which 
which will alleviate some of the pressure in those urban areas. Fair enough. I get that. Um, but let's put it this way. When, when we look at maps and, and uh, of all the different municipalities in the GTHA, and we look at their official plans and we, see, and we calculate you know, how much land is there. So when an independent foundation called the Neptis Foundation did that work, they found that we have enough greenfield, designated greenfield space that the province designated, about the size of one and a half times of Mississauga. So there's lots of space. Then the province says, well, if we're going to develop that space, we want to have greater densities and a relationship to transit. And that is underway. Similarly, when you look at existing communities, like let's take, let's take Mississauga as an example, it's building a, a very uh, efficient and very uh, useful rapid transit line along Hugh, Ontario. Well, along Hugh, Ontario, the sort of zoning regulations are very low. That is, they may allow two or three stories. Why don't we just say, when you build a major infrastructure piece like an LRT down the street, that the minimum zoning should be seven or eight stories. And that creates a lot of supply, too. And that's the kind of supply that certainly urban millennials like to live in. They want to be close. Many of my young staff don't even have a driver's license, let alone mm. a car. Mm-hmm. So we are doing this. This is all happening. And it's happening actually at quite a, quite a breakneck speed. Burkhard Mausberg has been with us, CEO of Friends of the Greenbelt Foundation, author of The Greenbelt, Protecting and Cultivating a Great Ontario Treasure. Burkhard, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We saw the horrific images coming out of uh, Syria uh, after the chemical attack, and then, of course, the response by the United States of America. Now G7 foreign ministers are meeting in Italy today uh, today to discuss a variety of topics, uh, the dominant being the actions in Syria. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Lindsay Rodman is with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, research associate with the Canadian, uh, sorry, with the Center for International Policy at the University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Hello, Lindsay. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. What does the world think of Donald Trump today, considering what happened over the weekend with the with the uh, retaliation attacks on Syria? Well, at the risk of uh, speaking on behalf of the world, I'll <laughs> try and take my best guess. It looks like there are two camps. Um, it sounds like the G7 and other members of the UN Security Council, for the most part, are applauding President Trump's efforts and um, his strike and the sort of strong stance that he's come out of the gate taking on this issue. Um, If you look into what the Iranians and the Russians are saying, of course, they have a very different perspective on it. And I would guess that the Syrians as well, and we can see from their statements, also don't approve. But but perhaps more importantly, from President Trump's perspective, um, it does not, of course, look like Russia is particularly pleased with these actions. Um, it looks like the U.S. strike actually uh, took every effort to de-conflict with the Russians. They warned them ahead of time. Um, no Russian planes were stationed at the airfield during the attack. No Russian facilities were on the base were targeted. And I don't believe that there have been any reports of Russian casualties. That being said, this is certainly an antagonistic move towards the Russians. So you've got two camps, a much bigger camp in support of uh, President Trump's decision uh, to take out that airfield and then a smaller camp that looks mostly like Iran, Russia, and Syria, who's obviously upset about it. Uh, As you mentioned, Russia was warned that this was happening. Could they have defended against this in any way in, in, you know, anti-aircraft, sorry, uh, anti-missile firepower, anything like that to have lessened the the burden on Syria if they had wanted to? 
they have the technology to do that, but that would be perhaps even more aggressive than what President Trump did. Um, since 20, uh, I believe 13, there's been a, maybe 2015, there's been a memo in place. It's a uh, memorandum of understanding between the United States and Russia. When Russia came into the conflict in Syria, um, they, they began the deconfliction regime where, regardless of whether the United States or Russia approved of what the other country was doing, they agreed to at least give them forewarning and therefore give everyone a sense of which aircraft were in the air and um, maneuvering and, and any other weapons that were employed. The idea there being that um, we're not at war with Russia um, and we wouldn't want to um, sort of have any air-to-air collisions or anything more dire than that. So, um, so this memorandum has been, uh, frankly, pretty successful in terms of avoiding any catastrophe along those lines. Um, but today, Russia said that the, uh, or it may have been over the weekend, um, that, that they consider that memorandum no longer to be in effect because of what President Trump did. Um, if they were to what does that solve by doing that? Does not, like, what does that do? What kind, of, what kind of retaliation is that? That just seems silly. It does, frankly, uh, from my personal perspective. It doesn't um, seem to really help anything. It just seems to make it more dangerous for everyone. Right. Right. It does. I think um, the signal, you know, if I'm trying to read into what they're doing and the logic that might be behind it is just that um, they no longer want to cooperate in any way, shape or form. I I wouldn't say that anyone believed that the Russians were, quote, cooperating with the United States before that. But this was at least a vehicle for diplomacy. And that's really where the shame lies. I mean, first of all, it's just not safe to be operating without this deconfliction to the extent that you can be safe during these types of military strikes. Um, but the second problem is just that it was at least one small vehicle that we had for some engagement, for some information to be moving back and forth, at least at the very tactical level. Um, and now we've lost that as well. So it's, I mean, it's a shame. Could Donald Trump in a sense be responsible for what, for the chemical attack in Syria? And I know, hear me out on this in the sense (laughs) that he said, and Tillerson all said days before this, we're not interested in removing Assad. We're not interested in getting involved in their war. Does that send a message to Assad? Well, let's go nuts here. We can do what we want, and they're not going to retaliate. I, I mean, I would not go as far as to say that President Trump has those sort of chemical attacks on, you know. I guess my point is in the fact that he him. changed his policy position on this so quickly. Yeah, well, I, you know, to the extent that you want to say that perhaps President Assad felt emboldened by the fact that the United States appeared not to be willing to mm-hmm. um, take a strong stance. Sure, uh, that's possible. Um, at the same time, the you know there have been a, some fair criticisms of the Obama administration's position, where they created a red line about chemical attacks and then really, um, yeah. you know, never made good on them or really didn't stick their neck out in terms of um, particularly bold moves in the face of encroachments on that policy by President Assad. This is, of course, the the worst thing that he's done since 2013, since we last had this conversation about chemical weapons. But they've been using barrel bombs with chlorine in them since then. I mean, there have been smaller scale chemical attacks using different types of chemicals since then. So it's certainly not, um, there could have been cause for more United States intervention previously. Um, there has been encroachment on the President Obama red line. So saying that President Trump also appeared unwilling to um, hold his feet to the fire I'm not sure that I'm willing to say that um, that you know th- this blood is on President Trump's hands. Uh, 
despite having been an Obama administration appointee, I'm by no means a, a Trump apologist at all times, but on this case, I, I don't know that that would be fair. No, I think emboldened was a better choice of words that you use rather than mine. Um, uh, where does this leave policy moving forward? Obviously, Trump, or, uh, Trump said he wasn't interested. Now he is. Obviously, the image has changed his mind. But as you mentioned before, there's certainly nothing new here. This has been going on for a while. The United States foreign policy towards uh, pretty much everyone has been everyone's best guess during this administration. So this is uh, certainly a surprising move and an interesting move. Um, It frankly puts more options on the table than before. You know, initially we thought President Trump had said, Syria's off the table. I'm not particularly interested in intervening there. Um, He's done one now precise surgical strike in retaliation for what I think, you know, most thinking, feeling people thought was a horrific attack by the Syrians. And now it appears that maybe there's more on the table. The In the United States Senate, there are a bunch of senators now calling for uh, more robust intervention in Syria. My guess is that that's not going to um, hold much water with the President Trump's administration, but this at least seems to open the door to that conversation a little bit. Um, and on the other side, he could just say, you know what, that was a one-time thing. I just wanted to make it clear that chemical weapons is where I draw the line. Boom. And then uh, move on to the next issue. And perhaps we don't see any more intervention in Syria beyond this, as long as President Assad uh, maintains uh, no chemical weapons policy or something along those lines. So it really kind of opens the aperture in terms of what might be possible in the future. Uh, prior to the campaign and, and certainly after uh, the inauguration, it appeared Trump was too cozy with Russia, uh, seemed more uh, more intent on ticking off allies than, than Russia. How does this change that whole discussion? How does that change, um, you know, e- even investigations that are ongoing in regard to ties with Russia? Uh, you know, uh, at one point it was described as a bromance between Putin and 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 Trump, which, of course, is, is you know, highly exaggerated. Uh, but it certainly doesn't seem that that's the case now. No, they're mad. Uh <laughs> So we'll we'll see. You know, you can you can make your friends angry and you can still make us. I would not before this administration have called Russia necessarily a, a friend of the United States at all times. But President Trump appeared to want them to be friends. Uh, we'll see if they can mend the relationship um, after this. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is actually on his way to Russia after the ministerial today. So um, so we'll find out in short order in the next two days. Uh, we'll see what press comes out of his meetings in Russia. Um, I've seen reports that he may be meeting with the president. If not, he'll certainly be meeting with the foreign minister. Um, and uh, and it, it may be that the timing is such that he has an immediate opportunity to clarify the United States intentions and try to repair the relationship to the extent he can put it back on rails towards the, the budding friendship that President Trump appeared to have wanted. Um, but there's no question that they've reacted angrily right now, and he may have jeopardized his ability to bridge that um, bridge that divide and create that friendship that it appears that he wanted. Many are worried that with the the retaliation strike against Syria, that this could escalate, uh, you know, into something else. Uh, and obviously, Syria is still bombing. Uh, what message has been sent there? How, how do they continue on with this? knowing that they're obviously under the eagle eye of the of the U.S.? 
Well, I'm not, if I were Syria, I wouldn't quite know precisely what the message was that was being sent to me, except for no more sarin gas. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, to the extent that that message was not clear, um, you know, that I would have some concerns. There. I think everyone understands that President Trump seems to have felt that that was the bridge too far. Um, but I don't, that is such a violation of chemical weapons convention, of sort of norms in terms of how we believe that these, you know, conflicts can be um, prosecuted. And then also just the the sort of moral horror and the pictures that result and that sort of thing. Um, that it's everyone sort of on the same page that that was a bridge too far. But I'm not sure that we know necessarily what up until then would be okay or not okay in the Trump administration. So it's going to be on them to clarify what their intent is in the near future. And frankly, President Assad hasn't really shown signs of slowing down necessarily so as he continues to prosecute his war will it will remain a test of what trump's intentions are we'll just see how he reacts to um things less than the chemical attack that we saw last week how will this affect trump's presidency moving forward we certainly saw what happened with the health care bill um even his own his own party didn't support his bill then he, he blamed the democrats for not supporting his bill will this unite his party at all or does this uh, just create more divisiveness, the fact that he didn't go to Congress on any of this. Where does this leave the party? Well, he's certainly being applauded by folks in the U.N. and some folks who didn't think that they would be in a position to be applauding some of President Trump's moves lately. And that may ingratiate himself, especially for the people who care primarily about foreign policy. Now, a lot of his agenda was primarily focused on domestic policy, and it's not obvious to me that this will change things for the people who are more focused on the domestic than on the foreign um, as I mentioned earlier, you've got some very prominent senators who are using this as an excuse to champion, again, a, a broader intervention into Syria. So um, it, it'll be a, a, hopefully an opportunity for them in consultation with the executive branch and with the president to maybe create some common ground and create a coherent policy that everyone stands behind. Um, but again, as I mentioned, this may just be a one-off. This may just be you know, he saw one too many pictures that really offended him, and he wanted to nip in the bud President Assad's interest in using chemical weapons. But aside from that, he may not be interested in intervening further. And in that case, at least on the foreign policy front, those who are more interventionist on the on the Republican side won't be willing to go along with him. It's interesting you said maybe a one-off, you really don't know. That's the way this president governs. I mean, even through the campaign, I mean, it was all about confusion. Why are we going to tell them this? He keeps his plans a secret. I think most, many didn't expect his reaction to Syria to be uh, what it is. How does this play, the fact that, um, you know, we thought of him prior to the attack one way, uh, now, obviously, we know he will shoot. But how, how do people feel about him keeping his plans or even his policies secret, per se, or even not telling us as much as people want to know? I don't know that he's keeping them secret so much as he's being a little bit reactionary. So I, I don't believe that he was sitting there thinking, if President Assad uses chemical weapons, that's where I'm going to draw the line and where and then I will strike. I, I think this probably was a little bit more of an emotional reaction and to something that he didn't anticipate. Um, and does that make going, you feel comfortable, Lindsay? <laughs> not not necessarily, but I do take you know to the extent that we can take solace in some of this. I'm encouraged by the fact that he was willing to revisit his position when he saw something so egregious that he had to act. Yeah, um, good point. So so you know we 
we call politicians flip-floppers when they change their minds um, often in the United States. And, you know, maybe that's fair, but maybe for someone who's willing to take in new information and change their minds when the landscape changes, yeah. that can be a good thing. Yeah, so, and when we do that, we yeah, when they don't do that, we say, well, they're not being pragmatic, you know. I mean, you, right. you can't win or lose. Good point. Right. Lindsay Rodman has been with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, research associate with the Center for International Policy, University of Ottawa. Lindsay, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.